in series through this great book of Scripture. Acts chapter 15, reading verses 1 through 10 uh, only. I'm sorry, Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. I thought there was something wrong there. Acts chapter 16, verses 1 through 10. He, that is, the Apostle Paul, came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess Jewess and a believer, and whose father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decision reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. May God once more bless to our understanding this passage from his most holy word. Now in these Sunday morning studies through the book of the Acts of the Apostles, we have been spending quite a number of Sundays together in the 15th chapter of the book of Acts. And in my mistake concerning the reading, it may have seemed to you we were going to spend yet another one in the 15th of Acts. But we have come to the end of that glorious and epoch-making chapter of the book of Acts, the very central chapter of its 28 chapters, and are ready this morning to pass on to the 16th chapter of the book, where we begin to see the great Apostle Paul at the commencement of his second important missionary journey. Now, some of you will recall from last Sunday morning's exposition that that great missionary journey began with the Apostle Paul visiting and encouraging and strengthening the earlier churches that he had, by God's grace, established on the first missionary journey recorded in Acts 13 and 14. And we left him last Sunday morning as a man who was poised to press on into the regions beyond. And we were reminded that though he had begun among those churches already established, there was in the spirit of this great apostle the vision of pressing into new fields of labor, of breaking new ground for the glorious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we're going to see this morning, and begin to see at least, 
the great and important feature of this second missionary journey as the apostle is led by God's Spirit to regions beyond. The great importance is that for the first time there is an organized attempt to bring the gospel into the continent of Europe. For the very first time, the gospel is planted officially in European soil, a move which had simply momentous consequences for all of the known world and for us especially in the Western world of our own age. But before it can happen, I want you to notice with me this morning as we go through these instructive first ten verses of the chapter, before that great move into the continent of Europe can ever happen, the Holy Spirit is careful to record in the sacred words of Scripture the process by which God's servants were guided into that amazing venture. Now, the question is often asked in the Christian world and the Christian church today, and it's probably a question that you have asked at various times in your Christian life. Can the Christian live a guided life? Can I, as a believer in the Lord Jesus, know in practical day-by-day experience the guidance of God as the men of Scripture so clearly knew it? And I want to say to you that the whole passage this morning answers that question with a most instructive answer. It's made clear in events both ordinary and extraordinary that were to result in the surprising Macedonian call as we know it, the vision to the Apostle Paul of the man of Macedonia, beseeching him and his companions to come over and help us. And in all the momentous consequences that were a result of the remarkable guidance of God for Paul and his companions. Are you asking that question this morning? Are you in difficult circumstances where you need the light of heaven upon the pathway on the earth? Well, beloved, this passage in a remarkable way answers the need and the cry of your own heart. Well then, first of all, how does God the Holy Spirit guide the Christian? And the answer is, he guides him through being prepared for the work in verses 1 through 5. Preparedness for the work. Now you remember we read that passage together a few moments ago when Paul, we read, came to Derby and then to Lystra where there was a disciple named Timothy. And the subsequent verses that go on to verse 5 to describe how the churches were growing and being strengthened in all that region of Asia Minor. Now, you recall that Paul and Barnabas and uh, Silas, I should say, and his companions had left Antioch of Syria just a short time ago and were traversing those regions that had become familiar to them through the first and great missionary journey. 
And they'd arrived at the cities, as we read, of Derby and Lystra, the scene of Paul and Barnabas's former labors and severe trials. And it's evident, as you read verses 1 through 5, that they spent a considerable time there. That's shown, for instance, by the fact that Paul became acquainted with young Timothy and came to know that he was well spoken of by all the believers who lived in that particular region, not only in Lystra, Timothy's place of birth and upbringing, but in all the churches round about. And also in verses 4 and 5, as you look at it, they, it says to us that they traveled from town to town delivering the decisions of the Jerusalem council. Clearly, a considerable time was spent there. Now, there are two lessons regarding guidance that I'm sure must strike us this morning from that considerable length of time that the apostle and his companions spent in that region. And these two lessons taken together show us that in finding the guidance of God, there is very often a preliminary work of the Holy Spirit preparing us for the work and the task into which he is going to lead us. Now, the first of these lessons that we learn from verses 1 through 5 is surely this, that guidance does not rule out the need for dedicated hard work. It does not preclude the need for dedicated hard work. We read in verses 4 and 5 that they traveled from town to town delivering the decisions reached by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Now, isn't that interesting? When you think of it, if ever there was a place that I suppose Paul would naturally have wanted to avoid in the whole course of his ministry and never go there again. It was the region of Lystra and its surrounding cities where he had been stoned and left for dead, you remember. The only man probably in the history of the Christian church, as I said to you, who has been stoned and deified in one single day. But no, you read of him travailing in labor in these very regions where he had previously been rejected. You read of his diligence in visiting and strengthening the churches in that area so that evidently all the towns of Phrygia and Galatia were recipients of the apostolic ministry as he brought to them the glorious decisions of the Jerusalem council that safeguarded the place of Gentiles within the growing church. These were seasons of extensive biblical labor and faithful commitment to the early churches that the apostles had established, consolidating and confirming the work that was already afoot among them. And the point that I'm making, you see, is this, that guidance, beloved, does not preclude 
the need for hard and faithful labor in the place where God currently has put us. Remember the apostle in all this time had sensed in his own spirit the call of the regions beyond. As he says to us in Romans 15 verse 20, it has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on another man's foundation. But where does that guidance of God begin that was to thrust him out into the regions beyond? It begins in the place of faithful hard work where God had put him. Now you see, some Christians today don't think like that. They don't seem to feel that in order to know God's guidance, I have to be faithful and diligent in the place where God currently has set me. And wanting to know the guidance of God leads them into inactivity, if not laziness and lassitude. And I'm reminded this morning of the wise words of Samuel Rutherford, one of the great covenanting preachers in the church in Scotland in those days of the killing times when the true church of God was being hounded into the moors and fens of Scotland. And he reminded his correspondents in one of his letters that duties are ours and events are the Lord's. A very timely word regarding the guidance of God. Or do you remember that incident in the 24th chapter of the book of Genesis when the servant of Abraham has been sent out to find a bride for Isaac, his son, and that godly servant reflecting upon the experience as he arrives in the appointed place says, I, being in the way, the Lord led me. And I want to tell you this morning, if ever you want to discover the guidance of God, you better be pretty sure that you are in the way of obedience to God. I being in the way, the Lord led me. And guidance, beloved, comes to those who are already busily engaged in heart and hand with the revealed will of God where he has placed them, whether it's at the carpenter's bench or behind the counter of a public store. But guidance does not rule out dedicated hard work. But the second thing you see we learn surely from verses 1 through 5 is that guidance does not preclude or rule out proper planning. If you look at verses 1 through 3 with me, surely this is one reason why God, the Holy Spirit, has put in the incident about young Timothy precisely in this place. You remember how at that scene of the apostles' great suffering, his being stoned and left for dead in the street, at that very place of Lystra, the Lord raised up one of the closest companions that Paul ever knew, to the strengthening of Paul's ministry. Isn't it a sweet touch? Almost like the passage in Judges where Samson had wrestled down the lion but roared against him and killed it 
And as he passed some weeks or months later, in that rotting carcass of the lion, there was a bee's nest, and he was able to say, out of the strong came forth sweetness, and out of the killer came forth meat. And so young Timothy is brought before us, a man who came into that father-son relationship with the Apostle Paul. Now, why is it that it is mentioned here that Paul in this young man sensed a potential leader and a valuable assistant for his future ministry, a man who clearly supplied the place of John Mark, whom the apostle, I believe, rightly had refused to take with him on this great missionary endeavor. Paul chose Timothy. Why? Well, because, you see, guidance does not preclude proper planning any more than it precludes hard and diligent and faithful labor. Paul knew that in his own spirit he was going to be led out into the regions beyond, that he needed a strong and effective team to be with him to bear the immense burden of preaching the gospel in pagan cities and towns, wherever the Holy Spirit in his sovereignty might lead the apostolic team. And he needed extra help for the arduous days ahead. And he didn't sit there in the regions of Phrygia and Galatia, piously trying to decide that the Lord will provide, and I need to take no forethought for what God is indubitably calling me to. But rather it is evident that the Spirit of Jesus led his servant to call forth new laborers, and this new laborer, into the harvest and endow him, Timothy, with special qualifications for his work. You see, we read in the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy later in his ministry, that Timothy was evidently endowed with special gifts at the laying on of the hands of the presbytery by whom he was commissioned to work with the Apostle Paul. He was solemnly set apart for this work by presbyterial ordination, and the church recognized in him such gifts that would suit him for the Apostle's companionship and usefulness. And you notice that Paul took him and circumcised him. Paul has been criticized for doing that, I think, wrongly. And it's been said of him that it was a compromise with the Judaizing party for fear of offending them. Well, of course, no such thing is true. And the reason why Paul took him and circumcised him because of the Jews is not that Paul recognized circumcision was necessary for salvation. Never! but he recognized that it was necessary for service, not for salvation. But since Timothy was widely known to be of mixed parentage, both Jew and Gentile parentage, the fact that he was not circumcised would inhibit his usefulness as a servant of Christ preaching the gospel among the Jews of that region who knew him so well, the unbelieving Jews and for service, not for salvation, 
Paul, in the wisdom of God, decided to circumcise him. Now do you see what I'm saying to you, beloved? Guidance begins in preparedness for God's work. Where you are, where God the Holy Spirit has placed you, by diligent labor and faithful service and commitment to the task God has set for you there, you will know in his time the unfolding purposes of the Holy Spirit for your life. By thinking prayerfully and biblically ahead as you sense the direction in which the Spirit of God is leading you and making provision wisely for those needs, the Lord will direct you. Preparedness for the work. But you notice, secondly, that there is progress in the work in verses 6 through 10. Paul and his companions, we read, traveled through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, in the succeeding verses is surely one of the most remarkable accounts of the guidance of God for his servants in all of Scripture, and it is in many ways the most significant part of our Scripture reading this morning. Having visited and helped the numerous churches in those areas mentioned, Paul was now anxious to press on and break new ground. And you see him thrusting forth with his companions and Timothy having now joined him. And we see, beloved, in these verses something that I believe Christians grossly neglect in these days. What is it? The Holy Spirit's activity in salvation. It's so often overlooked. But the same Holy Spirit who thrust forth these men in chapter 13 clearly is thrusting them forth again in directing them and redirecting them. In guiding their steps, as someone has said, and in guiding their stops. And one of the great lessons, as we'll see in a moment, is that where the Holy Spirit is in control, even a no is progress. And we need to remember that. Or to put the whole thing in another way, in the form of a question, ask yourself, who is in control? In these verses 6 through 10, as the apostolic team thrust forth into the regions beyond. Who is in control? It's none of the four colleagues. But it is rather God, the Holy Ghost. Look at verse 6. They were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Verse 7. They tried to enter into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. The sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in bringing salvation to unbelievers is a role we have forgotten about to our shame and to the weakness of our evangelism. Now, look you, there are several things here. There is a negative prohibition, first of all, in verses 6 through 7. Now, Paul's Whereabouts were obviously at this time in the area of Pisidian Antioch, the city that he had visited on his first missionary journey, the center probably of the area of Phrygia. 
and very close to the border of the province of Asia. And it's natural that their eyes would look to the south, to the southwest along the great Roman road that led through that region, the Via Sebasti, to the great city of Colossae, 150 miles to the southwest, onwards again to the great Asian city of Ephesus. And you might have said, what had they better to do than to bear the gospel to those teeming multitudes of the province of Asia that sat in darkness and under the shadow of death? Asia, Ephesus, Colossae, the other cities that are mentioned of that province in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, a truly inviting mission field which human strategy would have suggested immediately was the next stage of the church's expansion. Was this province of Asia wholly barren? That the Holy Spirit refused to allow them into it? Was it hopeless soil? That the Holy Spirit had other plans? He kept them says scripture, from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Now we know that in after years, Paul was to do some of his greatest work in that very area, staying for three and a half years in the great city of Ephesus. But now the door was closed against him by none other than the Holy Spirit, and he was forbidden to go south. And then their eyes naturally would have been directed to the north, to the province of Bithynia that lay alongside the shores of the Black Sea. And they tried, verse 7, to enter into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not permit them to do so. And in some way they were prohibited from going there. We don't know how. We know that Silas, one of their companions, was a prophet and maybe there was a prophetic message through Silas forbidding them to take that journey. Maybe it was some foreboding impression upon their spirit that they could not throw off, that they discerned was the guidance of God by the Holy Spirit. But in the opposite direction they were now forbidden to go and the Spirit of Jesus said no. And we know in later years that Peter in his general epistles, First and Second Peter, wrote to the churches that were in Bithynia. But now, at this moment, that region evidently was not ripe for the preaching of the cross. Now what are we saying? That the Holy Spirit's activity in evangelism is sovereign. Do you know we're living in days today where men seem to think it's under their own control? That because I've decided to go into such and such a city and have an evangelistic campaign or to go and pastor such and such a church, God will indubitably bless me in that ministry because I am doing it. And because I believe that wherever the gospel is preached, there is bound to be immediate fruit from it. But, beloved, is that really so? Here is an instance of the Holy Spirit saying no to evangelism. Can the Holy Spirit forbid evangelism? I was asked 
by someone in our own presbytery mission to North America committee that is charged with planting new congregations of the Presbyterian Church in America, you would be hard put to it, this man said to me, to find in Scripture where God forbids evangelism. And I thought, oh, what an unbiblical notion. This man needs to read Acts 16. Because sometimes and in some special circumstances, a prohibition may be the right answer. A no. And even that is progress because the Holy Spirit is and should be in charge of the church's evangelism. And, oh, beloved, we need to grasp that the aim of the preaching of the gospel is not the salvation of sinners primarily. What is it? Our forefathers would have told you in an instance. The aim of evangelism is the glory of God in the salvation of sinners. And you miss that first and important thing out and you're left with a man-centered notion of the church and of evangelism. And the sovereign Holy Spirit is the commander of the apostolic band and he it is who says, go there, but do not go here for reasons that are best known to him. So listen to him when to cancel and when to proceed. Now the second lesson you notice is a positive presentation. There is not only a negative prohibition, but a positive presentation. And you look in these verses and you see the apostolic band having been forgiven, having been forbidden to go south and then north, going in the only direction that was left to them, evidently in great puzzlement of heart and vexation of mind. Perplexity is a word we could use to describe their arrival as they journeyed west to the little port of Troas, ancient Troy, hoary with the legends of the poet Homer. And only when they came down there, Paul saw a vision of the man of Macedonia standing and beseeching him, come over and help us in the country of Macedonia, across the Aegean Sea, in the land of Greece, a momentous journey in which the apostolic band left the shores of the continent of Asia and landed for the first time on the shores of the continent of Europe. A positive presentation. Now you see, if we would desire scripturally progress in the work, we need to recognize the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit in evangelism and in the building of his church. We need to learn again the lessons of this passage. We need to admire the admirable care in which the Holy Spirit exercises himself in the building of Christ's church for reasons unknown to the apostle. The soil was not ripe, that soil that later in the cities of Asia Minor was to give an abundant and golden harvest under the apostolic labors. But for that time, the soil was not ready. But here, 
in the land of northern Greece of Macedonia was the place in which there would be a rich and ripening harvest for the preaching of God's word. Beloved, the Holy Spirit knows infallibly even an apostle does not. Isn't that an instructive lesson for us to learn about progress in the work? But thirdly, and very briefly as I close, the principles of the work. Now, how are we to summarize the lessons that we've learned here in this passage? Well, surely that guidance is exemplified in the experience of Paul and his companions God led them by a variety of factors, by a combination of factors, over a period of time, ending when they sat down and they pondered the matter together. Remember, there was a double prohibition. Somehow barring their way into Asia and Bithynia and leading them westward, the only course available to them, to that harbor whose mouth faced toward the west. The night vision calling to Paul for help. And these things then forming the basis for discussion among the apostles and his companions as they pondered together what these strange events meant. So the principles in a word are these. Listen. God's guidance is usually not negative only, a prohibition, but also positive. Doors, in other words, are not only closed to the Christian as he's obedient to God, but doors correspondingly begin to open. You notice, secondly, that it's not circumstantial only, but rational, that they pondered and they thought through the situation that they were in. The very verb in Greek, sumbibadzo, means a bringing together of all the factors involved, a concluding and an assuredly gathering from these different and sometimes contrary events that had happened to them, gathering them together and reflecting upon them with sanctified common sense and so being able to infer something from a variety of data. So it's not negative, but also positive. It's not circumstantial, but it's also rational. And it's not personal, but it's corporate, as they debated together what these things meant. Now you see, as I close this morning, isn't this a lesson in guidance for us all? That God prepares us for the work by enabling us to be diligent and faithful to him where he has put us, as he leads us into the progress of our work for him. He guides us both negatively and positively. And as we weigh these things up in consultation with other godly Christians, as we counsel together and weigh up the factors, he begins to lead us in the way of his appointing, I being in the way, the Lord led me, said Abraham's servant. And if we faithfully trust in God and obediently serve him, though our ways may be dark and puzzling and perplexing, as they were to this apostolic band, he will take us by the hand and guide us 
in all our steps and in all our stops as well. Have you come to that point where God has just stopped and said no? Well, don't despair. There is a reason for it, as we have seen. Where do you think that God is calling out this congregation this morning in his service? What new ground in your life is God, the Holy Spirit, pointing to even as you have listened to this exposition and said to you, I want you for this work. Surely, this is the lesson of this whole section. And may God give to us grace to be in obedience to the great commander of the church, the great leader in evangelism, the Holy Spirit of God himself, as he enables us to break new ground for his kingdom in this day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you this morning that the scriptures give to us rich lessons in guidance and bring to us very powerfully the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit over his church. May we realize these things and give him that honor and glory that is rightfully his due, knowing that the only kind of evangelism that can prosper in the church is that which is inaugurated and initiated planned and carried forward by none other than the Holy Ghost himself. For Jesus' sake, amen.